Hello and welcome back to Braindump. Thank you once again for tuning in. I really appreciate all the support and it's magical seeing uh, this little podcast grow. On this episode of Braindump, we're incredibly lucky to have the brilliant Tanish on the show. She shows huge heart and is so open and honest with her experiences with her mental health. And we also talk in depth about racism and what we can do to tackle it. I had such a great experience with this podcast and I really, really engaged with Tanisha. I thought she had so much to share and is an incredibly bubbly and lovely person. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Comment, like, share, let me know what you think. And a huge shout out to Tanisha. Definitely give her a like and a follow at Black Sugar Rising on Instagram. Highly, highly recommend her poetry. It's absolutely fantastic. Without further ado, welcome to this week's episode. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Brain Dump. This is a podcast where we talk about life from the meaningful to the 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 extreme. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It is such a pleasure to, to get to finally meet you and uh, yeah have you on so i really appreciate that oh thank you for having me <laughs> so denisha before i normally do i ask three random questions just to get sort of a feel for who you are what you're about so um tell me three things that happened last week that you're thankful for oh i like that yeah, okay. Three things thankful from last week. Oh my god, last week feels like <laughs> a year ago. I'm like, what happened last week? Um Well, okay, so my dog wasn't very well, but she made a very swift recovery. So I'm very, very grateful for that. I'm like, she's alright, she's got she's full of beans. So I love that. I think secondly, I made a really good meal for the first time in a while. I think COVID, I think initially I was cooking all the time and then I went through a really bad period. But yeah, I made a really good meal. Nice. So again, What did you make? Like a stir fry. Never no, made nice. a stir fry before, which oh. I feel like a shame to say. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's like one of my go-to. <laughs> I know, my partner was like saying the same thing, but I just never, you know, you buy it in the shop and it's like full of cabbage and I'm like, I just don't want any of that and that... I just don't want it, bean sprouts, but I made it all from scratch. You know, the carrots all chopped up nice. It was very good. And the third thing, I was grateful for the rainstorms. I'm glad that the weather finally broke. Like, thank you. Mm-hmm. I want to just run in and go like full Gandalf and just be like, <laughs> yes! <laughs> <laughs> so true, Gandalf. Shout out to him. <laughs> and who is someone that you really admire? It's a little bit, you know, a little bit cliche, but it is true. So... My nan, so she passed away, you know, sort of 10, 11 years ago. Um, but yeah, she's just, just an amazing, incredible woman. And I just feel very, very grateful that she's part of my ancestry. Like she was just, she was just great. And I think the way she kind of handled life and managed doing difficulties and tribulations, she just really was a very good role model, I think, for kind of living joyfully, but also, you know, being soft, but also hard at the right time. Do you know what I mean? Just... She's just awesome. Also, oh, I love that. That's cute. I'm a big fan. How do you best connect with others? Do you know what I really like? You know when you're sort of going down the street and you have a little smile with somebody? Just a little smile, a little nod, you know, even just at the bus stop and you have a little a little random chit-chat. I think those are the kind of connections that I particularly value. That kind of reminder that actually we're all just human. We're all trying our best. We're all pretty decent, so I really, really like that and think it actually make your day as well. Like, you know, get in the bus or 
on my walk to work. Right, okay. So just tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, what do you do and who who are you? <laughs> <laughs> who am I? So I'm a mental health nurse by background. Um, and I've been working mental health, well, I'll just be over 10 years now. So yeah, I do that. And I also lecture at UE on the odd occasion about race and diversity within mental health. Um, what else about me? I'm somebody, I like seeing my friends. Friends are very, very important to me and as is family. But yeah, I really like cooking. I like baking. Um, and I also write poetry. So yeah, I write poems kind of about like social justice, that kind of thing. I guess about my experiences around race and gender and sexuality and body acceptance. So those are the kind of things that I am quite passionate about and really, really care about. And it feeds into my work, but it's nice to have a kind of creative outlet. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I think that's so important and, and quite neglected. I'd get a bit more creativity in my life. And it's also great that you're tackling such important subjects. How did you get involved in mental health? I guess experiencing mental health from quite a young age poor mental health should I say so I grew up I guess in fairly chaotic circumstances some might say and through experiences I experienced quite poor mental health quite a lot of depression um suicidal ideation or suicidal thoughts is a less fancy term that was my first experience of mental health really and I think when you're young you don't really know what's going on but I think as I got older I learned more about myself and I think I went through a journey into recovery um but also I've got quite a strong family history of mental ill health yeah, a lot of people in my family, sort of uncles, um, my mum, my siblings. So it's it's quite, um, it's been around me really growing up anyway. So yeah, that's kind of what inspired me to get into it. I think having experienced it, especially as a teenager, I did a lot of my work with young people and still do, I guess, working at university now. I support students, but I think that younger demographic has been most of my work. And I think it's it's because of that personal experience of actually having been in that place and I think knowing how lonely and confusing and dark it can be. I almost think anyone that I know who's involved in mental health it's almost certainly because they've had some experience with it themselves. This started when you were younger, family trauma and things, is, is that all tied up in that? When did it all begin really? Yeah so it started when I was about 10. I had a situation where I became a young carer at that age and I remained in that role till I was 18, until I left home, went to university. Yeah, and over that period, I didn't know what young carer was. I'd never heard that terminology. I didn't come across that word until I was about maybe 15. So five years in, I learned about what young carer was. And I was like, oh my God, that's me. Somebody caring is a child. Oh my God. You know, I just, I just I'd never heard of it. So that was very helpful but I wasn't able to access their services till I was about 17 um so I only actually had a year of support um over that period it was very difficult like being in that situation understandably where you're sort of caring for somebody those responsibilities put on you without any consent um not having choice over most the kind of basic things I think a lot of kids take for granted and I think because I didn't have any friends in that situation. I hadn't met anyone else, I guess, doing that kind of thing. Just really, really, really difficult, really, really hard. And I think, yeah, I think even though I went to school and I was there, I didn't really miss that much school. I would on occasion miss things for various reasons. Um, but mostly attendance was quite good. And I think it was kind of weird actually that no teachers intervened. So yeah, I think that kind of thing also made it quite difficult. I think as I got older and realised what young carers was, I was like, 
it's interesting that no adults have actually stepped in at all, <laughs> including my own parents. Caring for a family member, I assume? Yeah, so I was caring for my nan, um, which was a kind of a blessing and a curse. Um, she was someone who brought me up anyway. So I'd lived with her for a while um, at various points growing up. Um, and she was, like I said before, she's one of my heroes, one I admire greatly. But I think that dynamic of actually having to care for her from such a young age was very, very difficult. My granddad passed away, basically, and she was left alone and without any help. I was ushered in, sort of, oh, this this sort will take care of you. Um, and that was the end of that, really. So, yeah, taking care of my nan. And so just, you know, those basic care things, bedpan stuff, you know, washing in the bed, um, washing in the showers, sort of mobility stuff happened with that you know taking her to appointments going to the GP with her a lot I guess all the medical things older people have to manage um but that was sort of left with me and I was also caring for my younger siblings as well under seven and eight kind of thing so yeah it was quite it was quite a lot for for me I can imagine that's a huge amount of responsibility and it sounds like it must have been very isolating being sort of dumped with all of this responsibility at but a young age when so much else is going on as well yeah I think it's that difficult isn't it I think a teenager you're going through so much with you know hormones even just starting secondary school education or just all all the things <laughs> all the things let alone um yeah having to care at the same time and so do you think being a young carer was the one of the biggest reasons for your, your spiraling mental health I would say so I think it does a lot to the psyche at that age. I think you meet adults who are sort of in caring roles, either, you know, for their own children or partners, family members, their parents, and you know that it's very taxing, it's difficult. Um, But they obviously are fully grown humans. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And it's hard for them. But I think it did a lot, you know, to my core beliefs in terms of things around my self-worth, understanding your own needs and putting them before other people's, and actually, you know, for your own benefit, other people's as well. But I think that kind of thing was, it was ingrained in me that, you know, other people's needs are more important than your needs always. And it wasn't a one-off message, you know, it was 24-7, because actually, if you're tired, you've got to get up anyway. If you've got homework to do, you've got to do it anyway, because you've also got to do X, Y and Z and do a school run and iron clothes and do X, Y and Z. Think just the constant nature of it. When you're young, you don't understand what's happening. It kind of erodes at your sense of self. Even understanding, even checking in, what am I okay today? What is it I need? Are my needs important? And is help available for me? And I think the answer was no consistently from various caregivers but also there's adults in my life people like teachers people at my church I was part of a very big church community and again in hindsight you look back and you think oh it's really weird that nobody sort of was like oh this person's bringing their nan to church every week you know, people know each other very intimately and it still wasn't sort of picked up as this is an issue that sounds awful it must have been so difficult and and how did you feel going through all of this you know you've already said that your your needs and everything was put secondary to everyone else that must have had a quite a big impact on on yourself it's a difficult thing to sort of um even unpack i guess even in adulthood i think because it was such a long duration as well i think working in mental health now and especially working with children having done that previously it is quite hard to understand how those things 
happened how it was allowed to go on for so long without any kind of interventions not even the offer of like counseling or therapy there was literally there was nothing <laughs> there was nothing I went to the gp about low mood and depression at various points and they would talk about weight um and health and that kind of thing um as opposed to what was happening in my family and i think similarly with school i would talk about various things i might not hand homework in or not finish coursework and I would explain, you know, it's because I've got this situation at home. And they'd be like, well, just do it anyway. And I, I do really wonder if, if I had been a white child, would I have had that experience? In terms of, I think, people held a view because of my colour about cultural norms. I think a lot of people thought, well, maybe that's just what happens with black people. <laughs> do you harbour any kind of resentment towards the fact that there were people around you and they, they weren't lending you a hand or you didn't have the support that you really should have had? I think I used to feel quite resentful. I think I went through a really, a really big period of anger and I think it was very late onset. Again, <laughs> growing up in a very Christian household, you know, you taught that anger is not an okay emotion to feel. And so I obviously had the emotion, but I wasn't allowed to express it. It was viewed as being bad or making me a negative person. So I didn't engage in that emotion at all really for those eight years as I got into adulthood on reflection I was extremely angry and I think confused you know wanting answers and this kind of thing I think it's something that I've actually channeled into my work I'm not going to get answers from those people I can't go back in time but I think actually what I can do is let it be fuel for the work that I do in terms of actually this is why I'm passionate about supporting people you know if I can make a difference if I can make a referral or see somebody and see they're in need and actually understand what's happening at that wider picture that's gonna have a positive impact it's amazing that you, you can do that um i definitely uh, resonate with the the anger i was just angry at the world a bit confused not really knowing why and i definitely took it out on a lot of people around me same sort of you know resentment at the time when no one's no one's understanding me and i'm also like i don't really understand myself so how can i put that on them it's great that you you know you can apply that uh, sort of emotional energy as it were into the work that you're doing today obviously you're working in mental health now do you find any of it quite triggering or does that bring back you know those feelings of, of depression I think I'd be lying to it if things weren't triggering and I think it's something that I've learned to not allow seep into my work but you know being human and showing up in the way that I do I can't help but feel the things that I feel so what I've been able to do instead is sort of notice when things come up so I'm quite good at checking in, in with my body during sessions and I will think, oh, you know, my tummy's feeling a bit tight or my chest is feeling funny or I feel like I've got, you know, I can feel something in my body that's different. And then I'll be like, oh, OK, there's something in this conversation that is difficult. And sometimes it's really obvious, you know, someone's like, maybe it's the same situation that I've been in. And I'm like, oh, God, I really resonate with that. And that's really like painful to listen to because I really, really get it. But sometimes things are much more subtle. The volume sort of turned down but I, later on, I think I'm going to check in with that. So I keep a note and then check in later and just have a little think about actually what was going on there. When things come up like that, it's unresolved stuff, right? It's like this is stuff that wants to be listened to. But, you know, it's something that's saying I'm here and please look at me. And so I like to give it that time of day. And I think the times when I haven't been OK at work, when I've become burnt out and actually had periods of time off work for burnout and stress related to work and home um it's because I haven't had that time to look after myself so it just builds up and builds up and builds up and then it's like I can't actually function at all 
it's very mindful of you to be able to notice those changes in yourself. You were saying earlier that your needs are always put secondary uh, and not receiving the help. Do you feel like it's something you've had to to learn to put yourself forward, to, to give yourself that time? You know, I need support for myself. It's been a massive, massive journey trying to unlearn um, those things that I was taught, things that were ingrained. Because I think I was taught that essentially it was inherently selfish, you know, to think about your needs, to, um, to even think about, you know, t- challenging somebody about actually maybe that's not good for me. So even boundary setting, that's been something that has been, it still is a massive work in progress in terms of actually that is how you create care for yourself. It's being able to say no, being able to say, actually, I'm not able to do that or not taking on work or cancelling even, you know, these things that I think as adults we're kind of taught what maybe are not okay anyway. Um, that being ingrained from such a young age, it kind of meant I was basically boundaryless. <laughs> like, yeah, that's fine. Like, of course I can do that. Like, yeah, I'll do the extra shift. Like, oh, yeah, like seven nights in a row. Oh my God, yeah, fine. You know, like, that's not fine. Boundaries have suddenly been something that, wow, this is really, really important and I need to develop these. And how have you bounced back from building boundaries? I think it's been about practice. You feel quite uncomfortable when you try something new. But essentially, I think when you're taught not to have boundaries, it reflects who you are inside. I think actually setting boundaries means that I'm not a good person. It means that I'm inherently bad. It means that I'm selfish. It means X, Y, Z. Always, always kind of negative associations with it. It's really, really deeply uncomfortable saying that first no or actually challenging somebody on something or I don't know. Say you want to have a Wednesday to yourself on an evening and actually having it booked out and your friend might say to you, you're free to come out and you think, well, I am free. But I've, I've told myself that I'm not free. I should just say, yeah, because actually I haven't seen them in ages and they're not okay. You know, this stuff where actually even that, they don't even know you're not free. I think working through the underlying stuff around actually, what does it say about me? What do I think it says about what my, what are my beliefs around saying no in this situation? How is that impacting my behaviour and what I'm doing? I think that's that's the work I think that's really, really important. It's great that you've been able to pick it apart so much. It's on my radar and I'm, you know, still learning. It's really great to hear from someone like yourself who you're implementing it and you're learning about it and you can tell there's there's a lot of growth there. When you were so struggling with your with your mental health, how did it like affect your relationships with others? I was just a really, really, really depressed person. They were very, very lucky to have maintained friendships. I was really, really fortunate to have friends that essentially, I guess, were not fair weather friends you know they, they kind of stayed with me for a duration of year seven to year 11 and then past then and we're still friends now and um, some of us I need a lot of help from them they were kind of my former family in some sense so I would call them quite a lot late in the night sometimes 3am 4am when I was in really desperate need I try and go to their houses as much as possible spend time with their families and get some respite when I was able to which kind of changed over the years at different points depending what was going on I was irritable at times but I think also I have a very good facade so I learned very very quickly very very early on to be able to be funny, be be fun, be bright, basically all the time, so that I would be able to maintain, I guess, some kind of normal. Yeah, it sounds really, really difficult. I'm really sorry you've had to had to go through it that way. I think a lot of us, when we're struggling, we're not even aware of the fact that we are 
in such a terrible place. Was there any kind of turning point when you recognised that you needed help? Yeah, so I think I had a few different points of kind of, oh my goodness, this is really bad, I need to do something. I think one of them was when I was 13 and I tried to take my own life three times in a very short period. That was quite big and I think when I did tell friends and my family, my family didn't respond too well, but my friends were like, oh my god, you know, this is, (laughs) you're not okay. I remember asking my parents to take me to the doctors and when I did they was they spoke they spoke about weight which was obviously not useful for me not really so that was a quite a big point I think getting to the point where there's kind of no other option and that seems like a really legitimate option kind of go through with in quick succession I guess so many attempts in a short time it was a wake-up call I think for me in terms of actually are there any other options is there another way because that didn't work <laughs> I didn't try hard enough or whatever it might have been, but, you know, it didn't work. So actually they've got, there's got to be something else. Yeah. And I think again, another turning point, I kind of developed an eating disorder when I was sort of 14, 15, that went on for a long time. And again, there came a point where I thought, you know, do I want to die of starvation? Actually, probably not. So I think there were some light bulb moments in the darkness of sort of actually like you have some autonomy and you know you can actually make a difference to your life and I think it's hard for a young person because actually autonomy there's very little it's sort of you go to school you live with your family you live with and you come home that's your life getting older reaching those ages where actually I could think actually I'm one step close to being 16 one step close to being 17 18 and actually if I can just work really hard I'll be able to actually leave and and create a life for myself that isn't dedicated to I guess caring for people that sounds so tough I'm really sorry it's interesting what you say about sort of that autonomy my sister um had anorexia and one of the single most important factors in her recovery was she changed school and she had a lot more freedom at the school and it, she chose the school and it gave her that autonomy that she didn't really have before and you're right about kids not having that autonomy of their lives, particularly if you're caring for someone else, then I can imagine you have even less of that. Was there anything that kept you going? I know you were saying about leaving home and things, but was there anything else that really helped you get through those really dark times? Yeah, we're really good friends. They were they were really amazing. So I'm very, very grateful to them. I think them being so constant and I guess so consistent in their message about actually we love you, like you're going to be okay. That was always a thing from them that I genuinely, I'm really thankful for. And then I think my religion, so I was a Christian and I was part of a very conservative Christian church, which was very, very serious. (laughs) That's not my belief system now, but I think actually having that in my life was a lifesaver in many ways, you know, that sort of higher power where there's someone that cares for you and loves you and actually wants to be involved in your life and be in relationship with you that isn't to do with your family our caregivers tell us what we're worth in the way they behave and if that's not positive we're gonna start feeling pretty shit it's true (laughs) it's true can't argue that (laughs) plain as it said but yeah so I think it was very very powerful having something in my life that actually wasn't about you know have your parents been like this to you yes or no actually it's completely outside of that it's just that actually you are special you're chosen whatever you want to call it and actually I love you that kind of unconditional love was extremely transformative even though it's not a part of my life now it was very 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 helpful when you're struggling to love yourself when someone can love you is 
unbelievably powerful. I completely resonate with that as well. I often find with a lot of Christians, there's a lot of guilt, maybe some shame. Did you struggle with that at all? No, I was really inquisitive all the time. So I, I engaged in it massively, you know, in terms of reading my Bible every day and writing down like those of journals and questions. And I think trying to grapple with those really big questions um, that are, I think just unanswerable. <laughs> you know, like, what's the point of life? We don't know. Why is this in the Bible? We don't really know. Lots of things in there, but I found it very difficult, especially because my church is very conservative. You know, ideas around gender roles and women and, you know, their role in the family and in church, I really, really struggled with. Um, similarly, around LGBTQ plus people, things in the Bible around that and the kind of views and opinions that my church preached and professed to be true, I was always quite confused, I guess, about those sorts of things. And similarly with abortion, all, all those kind of big topic issues, which I guess we see in the media all the time, they were things I couldn't find answers for understand especially because feelings that I had had around love and that being so transformative and so powerful and that being quite a tangible thing in my life you know I felt like it was a real living thing where I was like you know something cares for me and loves me and it made me feel better I think I couldn't marry that up with these other ideas and so yeah there was, there was a lot of tension particularly when you're young the truth you are fed from some kind of authority figure you don't really have a, any choice but to accept it god that sounds so difficult what was a, a turning point um was it just you left home or you know when did things start to improve when i was 16 my dad left um <laughs> not the start you were thinking <laughs> yeah. did you get help yeah my dad left when i was 16 um yeah so that made things more difficult um but it meant that my mum had a motivation to get help for everybody so prior to that you know things were not okay but i think her husband leaving was a, was a massive shock and the way it happened was quite difficult newborn baby was there yeah there was just a lot there was a lot happening and so she kind of got support for the family um, through a Christian counselling service. Um, and so we all had counselling separately um, at that time. So I think I had six sessions. I'm sort of being, yeah, 16 at that time. And yeah, that was my lot for those eight years. <laughs> that poor counsellor was like, whoa, <laughs> what we stumbled into. <laughs> <laughs> Getting a money's worth. No, it was free. But no, it's, it's, so, it's so true. <laughs> Yeah, no. And so that was the only intervention at that time, really. Cool, that's so difficult. Obviously, now you've been working in, in mental health for, for some time. Well, what point did that happen? Or was there, there was a big interlude? Or how did things develop? I think it was probably a little bit premature, <laughs> <laughs> in all honesty. Because um, it was literally, it was, yeah, it was straight after school. So, I mean, I went from being at home... And then suddenly I was obviously at university doing mental health nursing. There was no gap year or any gap. And so I think I had to do a lot of learning and growing over that period, I guess, on the job. <laughs> do you believe in recovered or is it? do you think it's just going to be a constant recovery? I think mental health and the way we experience it is part of the human experience. So... I don't know. I think not, not necessarily... I think anyone can be mental health free. I think in different parts of our life, we can kind of be mostly like, yeah, mostly okay now. But I do think it's on a spectrum and I think everybody has it. So 
I think when you go through kind of real severe breakdown and you're like, okay, I'm rock bottom right now. I think there's definitely a recovery from that state into maybe the state you were at before. But I do think life is so difficult. I think life is so changeable. I think you can't predict what's going to happen. And so I guess in that respect, I think our responses to life, it's normal. I think you can't unlearn the things you've learned. So you definitely get more resilience to what life throws at you but i think you're right you never know what's coming around the corner that can then <laughs> you spiraling out of control again so yeah i think it is a is a balancing act and it's about checking in on yourself and you're clearly very good at that do you ever worry about regressing or going backward i think it's something i used to worry about a lot especially those really dark periods when i was a teenager i mean a lot of it i don't remember actually because i think i remember you know it's sort of like it's just a bit of a closed door. But I do know that it was it was very severe. And I felt like I lost really all sense of myself. It was like it was just a, a span of darkness. I can't even really go into it because it was just so dark. I think for a while I was very scared of that coming back. Um, I think especially those real pivotal moments of kind of suicide attempts and suicidal ideation. And self-harm, my engagement self-harm behaviours as well. It used to kind of haunt me a little bit. And especially because in my adult life, I have had these periods where I have been off work for depression and anxiety. I've had sort of a bit of a psychotic episode. I was really sure what reality was. And those periods where I've been like, oh my God, am I going to get to that point again? But I think actually I'm at a place now where it basically has happened enough times. Um, <laughs> yay! No. I'm still here! <laughs> oh, yeah! Basically, it's happened enough times and, and genuinely I've survived it. I'm still here. It doesn't concern me now and I think it's actually another thing where I think, well, I know if it happens again, I will grow from it. Like, there's always stuff to learn. There'll be a reason why it happened again, whether it is sort of emotional burnout or something from my past that's come, you know, there'll be a reason why I'm not okay. And actually, if I need to get into that dark space to be able to heal that, then I guess that's what needs to happen. It's like a, a self-protection mode our bodies put themselves into when we're going into these dark patches. It's fascinating what you talk about not being able to remember a lot of it because I really relate to a lot of that. When you know, I was going through my depression, it is a bit of a sort of a blur. I'm just sort of angry mess the whole time. And occasionally someone will say something, I'm like, oh my God, that unlocks something. You also mentioned self-harm how come you self-harmed it's that dark that that dark period those dark years in my teenage time i mean honestly it was just it was just the last resort <laughs> i was like i really don't know what else there is for me i've tried reading my bible i've, t- I've spoken to my friends I've spoken to a teacher i've gone i've gone on a walk you know <laughs> i've tried to have a nap but, you know <laughs> all these things you're like and i guess you know back then mental health wasn't like on the agenda as much there wasn't it wasn't spoken about in terms of how do you keep your mental health well and i talk to my siblings now who are sort of 13 and 15 and they know the symptoms of depression they can they can list them to me and they seem really self-aware around various labels and terms and you know diagnoses that wasn't it just i think people were not literate in that way even well yeah i guess that'd be like 11 years ago now it's, you know it's, it's not even that far away so i think for me it was definitely yeah a last resort thing and it was in various forms you know in terms of like alcohol like cutting food restriction you know it was, it was various things that i was like i need something to help with, with the pain that i'm experiencing i always find it interesting because i think people 
self-harm for different reasons. Well, I self-harmed as well, and it was sort of turning emotional pain into physical pain because I was so much easier to deal with. And like you said, different forms as well, where it's also amazing. And I look back, I'm like, oh, that was probably a form of self-harm. <laughs> like, well, that was just really, really reckless behavior and things like that. That I think, as you were saying about how people are more aware of mental health in general, that you can spot the signs. It's pretty incredible that younger family are already on, on the pulse. That's very impressive. So what do you do now? What is it that you do to make sure that you don't slip back? Those body checks are really important. And I think it's not so much a conscious thing now. It's kind of routine. It's about having those daily practices sort of carved out. And I'm fortunate in that I don't have a family. You know, I've got a puppy. So that's like, that's a new thing that's taken up more of my time. But essentially, you know, I've got time to have practices that, that I can do daily. And whether that's sort of um, yoga, I really, really enjoy. I find it so peaceful and also it hasn't got to be long. You know, it can be 10 minutes, 15 minutes, or it can be an hour. But I think having that time on a regular basis to check in and to move, to be slow, I just think it's so nice in a fast paced world to have a practice like that. So I, I find that really, really useful. But a lot of it is those core things, you know, around sleep, exercise, diet, but also not being pressured around it. So not like I have to go to the gym five days a week and do. A million squats whatever because you know that becomes problematic for me with my history so that's not that's not okay uh-huh. but you know it's being able to hold things loosely but knowing what's good for me must require a lot of self-trust then i think so and i think it's been a lovely thing to learn listening again to the body keep going back to it but i think it's something especially with a religious background that you are really taught to be dissociated with and to be detached from in terms of like the body is a place of sin <laughs> you know it will send you to hell so <laughs> that is difficult and not helpful it's been so so nice to develop in that way in terms of tuning in to wants needs desires pleasure like all of it this is how I take care of myself now you mentioned earlier psychosis now I have never experienced this and it sounds utterly terrifying and you were mentioning earlier being connected with your body and that's a sort of very grounding experience but how on earth you can't tell what's reality and what's not that must be absolutely ground shaking i think i was fortunate in that it wasn't like a full-blown episode so obviously having witnessed that in a hospital setting on a very severe scale on an acute ward i know it wasn't like that so i definitely can't speak about that kind of experience but i think for me yeah it was incredibly frightening because it kind of crept up it was a kind of slow thing feeling a little bit out of sorts feeling a bit weird and then things became louder and brighter and more vivid by night but also started happening by day remember being like oh you know don't know why things are so bright and being kind of weird i don't know weird things where you might just think oh maybe i'm a bit overtired today but it kind of started happening more frequently and then paranoia set in and i was really certain that people knew things about me i kind of stopped going to the shops i would walk in and think people instantly knew all of my history like things that you don't want people to know i was like oh my god they know this thing and it was just very very odd and then it started becoming weird there were sort of walls breathing and wow it was trippy and I was fortunate though in that I'd already gone off work sick for stress so I was off already and then this started so I guess I needed to go off yeah yeah definitely <laughs> clearly <laughs> um, <laughs> um anyway I was working on a ward at the time so it's just kind of funny to think of it can't even imagine how overwhelming that would have been you, we also mentioned that you didn't really get the support that you should have had, really, in, in going through everything you've been through. Do you think 
your race played a part in that? I do. It's a very difficult thing to guess to quantify. I can't, I can't prove it. I guess that, that's what I'm trying to say in terms of evidencing something. So I guess a bit of background about my, my school was very, very white. So it was a kind of C of E non-catchment school. People came from all over. It was quite a well-to-do school and said they did very, very well. He went there for schools of the area, <laughs> I should add. <laughs> so it was quite white. There's also quite a big Indian and Pakistani community as well. But in terms of black people, there were four of us in my year. I'm sure there are more in the school, but I think experiences that I had with friends and people that I knew, there was a lot of support for other young people who maybe were not turning up to school on occasion or turning up looking a bit sad and gloomy. Um, so I remember there being like these big meetings about one of my friends who basically was being sick because they were anxious and they thought it was an eating disorder. So these big meetings that they had, I think I witnessed that quite a lot with the students. And yet for me, my depression had quite a good facade, but it was also very obvious in many other ways in terms of being dishevelled, even like not smelling good. I wouldn't shower sometimes for six weeks at a time. Whoa. I was not okay. <laughs> so, I mean, you can't really not see those things. I think especially quality of work would change depending on what was happening at home. I was a high achieving student in some subjects and other ones not so much. I guess it was a mix, but I think generally if someone's not handing their homework in because they're telling you I'm having to get up at 2am to do this and this and this and actually it's been going on for three months or three years and someone's just like, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's savage. I think I have heard it said before about people as a practitioner. People are like, oh, but in that community, that's the kind of thing that happens. They care for people or that's just how they do things in that community. And I've heard that kind of thing. And I just do wonder if that was coming into play with my situation. I see. So like cultural stereotype that they're then excusing your behaviours and, and things just because that's their interpretation of everything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. most of the studies that i've looked at are black men and the impact on your black men's mental health is quite severe because of the impact of their skin color so there seems to be some ties there have you ever ex experienced racism yourself oh my god <laughs> sorry <laughs> <laughs> it's everything yes but i have to ask <laughs> no of course no it's made me laugh no yeah yeah i think you know there have been um, really overt racist things that have happened but also uh, most of it has been covert racism or people don't necessarily know that they're being racist they just don't know but yeah there have also been some very very overt things that have happened over the years in school primary school secondary school university not so much out in clubs basically anywhere <laughs> on holiday can't really escape it oh it must be so difficult particularly when you're not really being represented at school anyway that must have a huge impact on your mental health particularly if you're already struggling to love yourself and then the way that they're treating you then must compound on top of that it is i think again a massive thing to the psyche for any any marginalized group who are being targeted especially growing up in the uk where you know you're a minority you know the color of your skin is when people know it straight away and they they do judge you by that it's such a weight to carry it's such a weight to bear and it's hard to not feel powerless and to feel like you don't really have, you know, agency about how other people perceive you. And, you know, nobody does, in essence. But I think when it's negative perceptions that's going to impact you badly, that's very, very problematic. 
Certainly. You're also a racism educator and presumably your own experiences and being a very compassionate person working in mental health anyway, that is that inspired you to get involved in that area? Yeah. Over the years I witnessed quite a lot of stuff on wards and in other areas of mental health that were not good in terms of the treatment of black men particularly in terms of restraints that were used or the amount of restraint used on people even just perceived aggression I think sometimes when being in a mental health assessment once and there was a Caribbean man who was speaking in Patois and professionals attending there who were sectioning him they didn't know what he was saying I mean he was mentally unwell I knew what he was saying and he needed some help but they escalated the situation you know they were saying things that didn't make any sense to him he was replying to them they didn't understand him but they acted like they did I think various things where you know that's just not acceptable I just think wards are they're really hard places to be for anybody but I think as a black person working on the ward and witnessing how it is I guess on both sides, a lot of people are very, very fearful of what's going to happen to them on the ward because they know that their family have had similar experiences, their friends have had experiences of actually being overly medicated because they're so aggressive. People aren't going to write in the notes, they're black, so we gave them loads of lorazepam. People wouldn't necessarily know it's happening, but it's happening all the time. Yeah, this is what I was going to start picking apart. I have a lot of friends, let's say, who are like, well, I've never seen racism. We're a, you know, we're a very privileged country. It's a very fair society. You know, there's no such thing as racism in the UK. What would you say to that? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) I would have to laugh first. (laughs) Um, No, I think us Brits... Everyone is very polite. People are not necessarily direct about the racism. Unless they are far, far right people. I know them people in the streets. I'm not worried about them. (laughs) Yeah. I see them. I know them. That's okay. It's the assumptions that people make that change people's lives as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Unconscious bias, even in the workplace, in terms of progression for certain members of staff, but not other members of staff because of the colour of their skin. It impacts everything, you know, opportunities are going to be given, impacts, if I have a kid, how they're going to be treated in their school in terms of exclusion rates. There's not an area in society, whether it's education, politics, healthcare, literally you name it and it's there. And there are examples that I could, that I could say for every single one, genuinely from experience or from someone else that I know. What's difficult is that I really think a lot of white people do know in terms of how many stories do people need to hear or read or see before it's just accepted and then we do something about it and actually make a difference. Yes, exactly. So what you're you're describing is structural or systemic racism. Is there a definition for structural or systemic racism? It is the stuff that scaffolds our society. It's all the stuff that we don't see. We're not thinking about the systems that are in place, but they're all there. And like almost in the foundations and the brickwork, that's how I like to think of it. It's the stuff that is almost invisible to the human eye. Well, I say the human eye. I think to black, to black, to black people, to the black people with eyes. You know, it's it's not invisible. But I think to other people that are not black, it benefits those people. Mm-hmm. So they're not really engaged with it or seeing it in the past we've all been taught to be sort of colorblind what is it meant by colorblindness mm-hmm. so i guess it's that assumption that color doesn't really exist just the same which live inside each other and there is no color yeah it's a really big thing i think maybe in the 90s or early noughties people would be like i don't see i say as well i don't see color like we're all just the same but it's clear that we 
are different and so by saying that actually you don't see it you are denying what is reality in people's experiences something i grew up hearing a lot actually was was about assimilation okay i think i grew up in that time of multiculturalism that was like a big word everyone's maybe it's where i'm from in the midlands but it was like multiculturalism and we've got people from here and here and here we all live side by side and it's great but i think there's a massive massive pressure to it to assimilate again back in those days it was like the word was um tolerance okay like we tolerate everybody we're in what called society it's it's brilliant this is all under tony bear i think and um, from memory but i think there's this idea that you assimilate actually you don't see difference because we're all the same and so i think it makes people behave differently so if i reduce my stereotypical blackness if i try and behave more like you if i talk more like you if i wear my hair more like yours you won't notice that i'm so different i think color blindness it kind of goes into that it feels like it's degrading all sense of heritage and what you said earlier about denying someone's reality it's like with mental health you would never say to someone who's struggling with chronic anxiety yeah whatever you just deny them their reality because ultimately it's, it's their life that they're living but then race is something that that is who you are by not acknowledging race you're, you're also turning a blind eye to how black people are completely disadvantaged in hundreds and hundreds of ways i was reading so many really interesting scientific papers studying different groups and the interaction of applying color blindness it was actually really detrimental to people of colour. So applying colour blindness is, is a form of bias. No, it really is. Like you said, it's denying the areas of disadvantage and actually it's not going to create equity. Mm-hmm, that's the word. <laughs> it's equity, isn't it? So it's like actually if somebody needs a ramp because they're a wheelchair user and it's like actually, well, no, you don't need that to, to get up there. That is not okay. And I know that's quite, it's difficult, isn't it, to kind of compare that, um, but it is that sense of denying reality the kind of blindness the kind of undertones of it is actually that everyone's white exactly yeah that's what it's really saying it's not color blind and we're all black (laughs) it's like i don't see your color you're like me it's like i'm not (laughs) whether white people acknowledge it or not we are the sort of default quote unquote and so as a result anything away from that people see as other and they can people xenophobic and things like that and so there is a selective bias whether people realize it or not and color blindness almost deliberately ignores all of that Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, 100%. What is white privilege then? It gets thrown around a lot. What is white privilege? I guess the first thing is that it doesn't mean that someone hasn't had a hard life. It's not privilege in the sense that you're a millionaire, but it is about the ways that you don't have to think about your race. You don't have to interact with your race at all um, in life. And that in itself is a privilege. The non-awareness, if that's even a word, but the non-awareness of white people that they are white that in itself is huge to be able to walk around and just think well to not think anything that's massive it's not to say there are lots of people that are working class lots of people that are you know having really difficult times their white working class are still not having to think about their race in relation to the world and how they walk around and how how the world perceives them they don't have to think about race being a factor in regards to risk that's a massive thing i think as a black person there's always assessments of risk every day in terms of, am I safe in this space? Am I the only one in this space? 
people thinking about my race, having to micromanage everything and be super, super conscious because of your race, that is a disadvantage. And that's just one element of it. Even just things like people's names. It's, you know, there was a study done, I think a few years ago, we gave out CVs of exactly the same stuff in the CV, but one name was Mohammed and the other name was something like Adam. And the amount of people that actually returned those CVs and asked for an interview, it was so much less for Mohammed, but it had the exact same content, word for word. That is white privilege. It's absolutely terrifying. I remember I read a book called Me and White Supremacy, and in it, there's like journal prompts and you have to sort of check your privilege. And Peggy uh, McIntosh, she wrote a list of 50 things that she benefited from white privilege from. So I went through this list and I had 47 of them. And the only three that I didn't have were because I had to have kids in order to benefit from that privilege. And I was like, oh my God. Wow. And this is why I was thinking about not being represented at school or in the office or whatever it might be. That awareness of being black in a, in a white office or school or whatever it might be. Conscious making decision must be 10 times more intense and obviously you know I'm, I'm white so I'm, I'm I've never even had to register that before until I read this book and I can imagine that is so closely tied into people's mental health and their perception of themselves because of the fact that society treats them differently definitely you know, put anybody in that situation over you know, a lifetime essentially of being categorized being policed policed in all the ways literally with actual police people you know even tone policing being judged people saying the most stupid things to you I think it's the way it comes up in all areas it's really really difficult you know, even with friends who you've been close to for years they can come out with stuff where you're like oh my god this is so disappointing and really really hurtful and they don't even know for anyone in that position they're gonna have difficulties and struggle with the mental health and I think particularly I'm interested in paranoia again obviously really reading about black men and mental health and psychosis is a really big thing in this country the sectioning rates and that kind of thing for, for black men. Well, you have to be super aware all the time. Paranoia is going to ensue. Sure. You know, like hypervigilance. Yeah, hypervigilance. Is, is, how's my posture? Am I coming across as aggressive? Am I looking threatening? What am I going to wear today? Is this appropriate to wear to this place? If I put my hood up or should I wear it down? Am I, should I wear black or not? Because that become a burger. Every single thing. Do my shoes look too fancy? People are going to think I've robbed them or driving your car. Is it too fancy in this area? People are going to think, why are they here? I can't explain, you know, the frequency of thoughts around race for a black person. I can imagine that being all consuming. In Renier Lodge's book, Why I'm Not Talking to White People About Race, she talks about sort of a fear of a black planet and how what you were talking about, whether you're having a hood up or becoming across as aggressive is almost like a, a threat to white people that as a result then you're policing your own behaviour to, to not create a threat. And I think this stems from white fragility. Mm -hmm. What is white fragility? Essentially it is what it says in the tin. There's a real kind of sensitivity to all things that are related to race. Um, in terms of blackness, people's own whiteness, privilege comes into it. When I think of it, I think about white people crying. <laughs> I really agree. <laughs> I mean, in response to being told, you know, that's racist. And it's like, I'm not racist. That's not what I intended. And it's a lot of pushing the stuff back onto black people. And actually, it's not to do with me. 
this is not my issue. And that's what I think of when I think of white virginity. It's amazing how I read a few of these books and then went on like a Black Lives Matter mission. And I was bringing race up into every conversation that I've possibly had. But one thing I really, really found was, and I think it is this whole white fragility thing where people either take offence to whatever you're saying and act quite hostile to whatever it is that you said, or it's almost like a, a deliberate sort of turning a, a away from the whole conversation. But I find that because of this sort of white fragility, it completely derails conversations and then it talks about how whatever I said was not the right thing rather than, well, we've gone completely off topic here and you know? we're not having a constructive conversation about anything. It centralises white people. I am upset now. And how could you say that to me? And that was so mean. And you need to think about what you've said. It goes off topic. Actually, what happened? <laughs> Let's look at it. Let's talk about it. Because people are going to get things wrong. And say it's okay. You know, It happens. We have to accept that people get things wrong. But if people are not willing to then say, actually, yeah. I think what's hard for me as a black person is... In my eyes, all that it is that white people have to deal with is discomfort. That's really all it is. It's sitting with this sense that actually maybe just when it was hurtful, maybe you're not educated on something, maybe you got something wrong, and that's uncomfortable. But actually, it's not unsafe. It's not violent. You're not at risk. And yet, really, it's the bare minimum to think about it or to question things and to say, oh, do you know what? Maybe that won't right. That's what can be so painful, I think, certainly for me. There's this sort of white victim card that gets played, as you say, that the roles get reversed. But how can we have more constructive conversations around race? People either they get really hostile about it or they walk away from the conversation. How is it that we can create these open dialogues? When I do, I like to call them workshops really, but I think when I've done them, they feel very open. They feel like spaces where people can genuinely share bad practice, good practice, talk about their own beliefs and that be in a room and full of not a small group. People are really sharing things where they've done things that are not so great or we look at case studies and we talk about actually what are the kind of beliefs that you've had about this person before. People really unpack it. And I'm trying to think about why that's different maybe to a real life conversation. I guess maybe in a university setting people are there to learn the atmosphere is already one of let's have a dialogue about something and actually there is no right or wrong answer with this sort of thing and I wonder if maybe that would be helpful to take into normal life none of us have all the answers all need to be learning all the time about various things that are happening in the world that relate to all areas of marginalized groups refugees like LGBTQ people people all, all the people and I wonder if that would be helpful I guess even just that acknowledgement that actually we're born into a racist society and so we all need to unlearn that I think even if you're told that when you're four in primary school I wonder if that would even be helpful for as you get older, being able to, to have those conversations up without it being defensive and without it being a personal thing. Unless it is personal because you've been a dick. I mean, in that case, yeah, <laughs> let's be personal. <laughs> but most people are not just straight out dickheads. So I wonder if that would be like a cool thing to foster, you know, where it's like actually we're all in the process. We're all human. And I don't think we want to hurt each other. Not really. So maybe let's have that about us. I think it all stems from our attachment to ego. I've got to be right or I need to protect myself. And so these two flashes of emotion pop up and then it just 
derails the whole conversation and we end up not getting anywhere because we either feel under attack or we feel like we've got to be right. It's so difficult to have those conversations. I've been trying and it's amazing how people just don't want to hear about it. Well, I feel like our generation is more open-minded, but I think maybe I'm speaking from a a white privilege point of view. (laughs) I mean, I hope so. I think so. I mean, I think even things like the um, Black Lives Matter march, the first one, turned out, I think, what was it, 10,000 people were there? That is amazing. It was such a mixed crowd. There was loads of white people. That was amazing to see. Definitely. And I do think it does speak about our generation. I think being in the middle, I think the ones coming up now are even more radical. They're just amazing. The ones that I've met anyway, that older generation that I think can be a bit, still a bit stuck in their ways and a little bit traditional, though I hate the word traditional as a kind of euphemism for all things very big. <laughs> I hate that as well. It like gives an excuse or, oh, we've always been this way. And it's like, well, that's why things are broken. <laughs> <laughs> Right. You mentioned BLM. I worry that people are going to just see looting. And I've already heard conversations uh, from white people going, well, you know, it's just an excuse to rob things and stuff. What would you say to things like that? You know, I'm not condoning behaviour that's like anti the law and whatnot. But I mean, essentially, when people are being killed because of the colour of their skin, it's just not important anymore. Talking about military stuff. (laughs) Like, number one, who's that impacting? What, that store? I just don't think it's that important. I think, again, it's that diversion tactic. And I think it says a lot about those people. If people are dying, I guess it's that thing where black people are dehumanised to the extent that actually someone's death is not that important. But a pair of trainers taken feels more important. I'm like, that needs to be reassessed. It gets to the point where there have been enough peaceful protests now and they've all been ignored and no one's done anything about it and so it's kind of like well what other options are there people need to get this message out and, and be heard again derailing the whole conversation taking it away from the, the, the actual point but it's great that bristol has been so positive just seeing the the videos of what's his name edward colston that's the one being behauled down what do you think of that positive I just thought it was amazing. That's my honest reaction. <laughs> I think a lot of people responded in terms of like, how can this happen? And this, this is our statue. A lot of people were very angry. And a lot of people were like, oh, they should have gone down it the right route. They should have done it the right way. But actually, I was talking to somebody who is a Bristolian, born and bred here, and they're sort of in their late 60s. And they were saying that there have been petitions and talks about that statue for 30 odd years. <laughs> I'd heard the same, yeah. And it's like, again, the whole peaceful route's not really worked. And the video was incredible. The crowd, wow, this is some positive change. People are doing something about this. I thought that was really, really, really powerful. So what I wanted to bring up is tokenism. Now, tokenism being getting a a black representative and being like, hey, we're not racist. There's tokenism, but there's also businesses and things putting quotas in to get more uh, people of colour in office. Is that effective? Does it work? You know, some people say, oh, is it reverse racism? No, that's funny, that reverse racism thing. It is needed, those sort of positive discrimination in terms of actually we are looking for people to apply who are from these marginalised backgrounds. It's a good thing. And what is difficult is that a lot of workplaces, like you said, they do do it and it is tokenistic. Those workplaces are not set up to actually look after people of colour. Kind of get black people in, it makes them look good then actually they're not looking at the structures in their own workplace with their own company that actually uphold 
racist values that's a big issue because i think yeah you know of course recruit people that need to be recruited give people jobs representation is important it's really important that we all see somebody who looks like us in all positions of all society politics and healthcare medicine all the stuff we need everybody to be there but if you can't look after people once they're there and actually evaluate your workplace then it's not really okay it's not really fair on those black people i think that's a point that I would have never even thought of, to be honest. Fill the quotas, make it all diverse and things, but then you're realising people won't stay in a culture of a company or in a medical profession where they're not being treated right in the first place. Have you ever been affected by intersectionality? Because you're, you're queer, you're black, and you're female. Do you, do you find that difficult to navigate? Yeah, massively. I think it's hard enough, isn't it, sort of having one identity that is you know oppressed essentially but then having various identities that intersect it does make things very difficult I guess on a personal level it goes back to policing things in your own head about am I safe here not just in terms of my blackness and my femaleness but also with my partner holding hands with her am I safe here do I look visibly queer you know these things in terms of trying to pass as straight or pass as white there are all these things where you're trying to reduce I guess danger from your own life and um, which is really 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 sad because in doing that you are denying yourself so yeah I think it is a very difficult thing to navigate in Reniedo Lodge's book she also talks about feminist movement and how black women are completely underrepresented and again it's like okay yes you're striving for equal rights on a sexism front but then you're denying black women of their race because they've got to choose their feminism over their racism, no? It's their gender over their, their, their race. I can't imagine how difficult that is. Your partner's white, is she? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she is. Has that been difficult? Like, have you ever had people throw assumptions at you there? I think it's been good. I think it's been hard at times. I'm very fortunate that my partner is very open and I guess I wouldn't be with her otherwise, realistically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we'll have conversations about, I guess, internal bias. All these things where she might say something where I'm like, A up. <laughs> what the hell's <laughs> going on here? So I think we've got a very open relationship where we can talk about things that come up with our own families in regards to each other. We both had things that have been said that we have to talk about afterwards in regards to race, sexuality, all the things. So I do feel like it's a healthy thing. Yeah, I mean, she's great. It's just, it's just communication, isn't it? And understanding, being able to apologise as well, understanding when you've actually said something that's not okay, and learning from it, because we've all got the ability to grow. And I don't think people are inherently bad humans for getting things wrong. Yeah, constant communication, I think, that's important. Another topic that I wanted to talk about was body image, because a lot of female ideals in quotation marks are white women and that is then posted out to the universe that must have a, a huge impact particularly on black women on how you view yourself how you think you should look what are your thoughts projecting white female ideals i mean it's bad for everybody <laughs> because even white females generally can't live up to that ideal so the whole thing is just messed up certainly for black women it's a lot to navigate and I think especially again for me growing up in the school that I did with only four black people in my year two of us were girls two were two were guys you're not deemed attractive you're not deemed as desirable and even that as an important thing is fucked anyway <laughs> it's all tied up in um, patriarchy and horribleness <laughs> horribleness 
<laughs> just horribleness. We don't want it. You still can't deny, or at least I still can't deny that doesn't impact me or didn't impact me. I think I'm in a much better place now. It's massive. And I think it's also a double situation. So I think you've obviously got white standards of beauty, your eccentric beauty standards, which are put on you from the minute you're born in terms of the dolls you play with, the adverts you see. Wow, just everything, media, everything is that. But you've also got, um, what is the word? Misogynoir. Okay. It's misogyny towards black women in particular. These ideas about black women in terms of being sassy, being very sexual, have big bum, you know, all these things where sort of like women are there to be used and they're objectified. There are various standards for a black woman that are kind of put on her that are essentially about her being an object in all the ways. And I know this is quite a sensitive topic, but black hair. Mm. There's a lot of changing hairstyles fit sort of white ideals, I guess. I remember when I first read this, and this is again a huge sign of my white privilege. I had no idea. Absolutely no idea. I didn't even register me and I was so ashamed of, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a massive thing. There are a few different things, I think. For me, I've got a personal journey with my natural hair. So I, I, I feel quite passionately about it. But I think also for a lot of black women, they're sort of like, I can wear my hair however I want. And it's not about conformity. It's about actually just a style that I like. It's not a political thing. This is the hair that I like. And if I want to have it straight, I have it straight. If I want to put a weave in, I put a weave in. If I want to do it, x y and z and it's not about the people but that's not my experience okay so for me it's something that i really struggled with growing up all the way from being a kid i always think about afros and and how they're sort of um you know they're comical it's either like clowns or it's like a 1970s outfit i think in terms of the things that i've seen and how it's portrayed it's different now because people that i follow and the world's a bit different now but i think growing up it was genuinely just afros are a joke um, and they're not desirable they're ugly even things like for me you know, you know john frieda frizzies like for me i find that really difficult to look at in a shop i find that really painful because i'm like well my hair is frizzy okay <laughs> there's no easing my hair unless I put chemicals in it straightening your hair and get all the frizz out me I find that particularly difficult because it's telling me that my hair it's ugly it's not nice why would you want that people have their perfect curls you know perfectly in line again that's a eurocentric idea of perfect curls and I think a lot of the curls that we see on tv or anywhere really even with people that are maybe black, but they're sort of mixed, you know, dual heritage, maybe their hair is looser. And those are the kind of curls I think we might see more. But hair like mine, I think it's still not seen as a beautiful thing. But I've, I've been on a journey where actually I know my hair is beautiful. Like I'm very, very proud of my hair. Oh. Yeah, I think it's amazing. Oh, that's really heartwarming to hear you say that. I can imagine, again, it's like that rejection of self, that it's not representative and therefore it's other and that reflects on how you love yourself and how you treat yourself. Definitely on those kind of more serious levels, like job applications, like you want to go for an interview. There have been cases in America and actually here in schools where people have been sent home for having an afro out. No. Yeah, it happened last year in, in some schools in London. Some kids got sent home because they had an afro out. There was like a legislation passed in New York around not discriminating against women with Afros, Afro-Caribbean people because of their hair for job interviews and that kind of thing. And being told in jobs that your hair is not tidy, it's not professional. It really ripples into everything. Yeah, you don't want to have a job interview and have to think, this is how my hair grows out my head. So if it's not okay... <laughs> 
what, what else do you want? Yeah. Again, another thing that Renier Lodge talks about is how racism is prejudice plus power. And so you can be openly prejudiced with nasty slurs or how you treat someone, but ultimately you can only really be racist when you have power to enforce oppression upon people. And these are examples of racism that we're not even, well, as white people, we're not even aware of because of the fact that it just doesn't it's register us. And, and then again, there's that all white apathy to the fact that because it doesn't impact me, I don't care about it and I'm not going to apply attention to it. And as a result, nothing gets done about it because we're the ones in power and then the whole thing snowballs and then that's impacting people's mental health left, right and centre. Something I wanted to talk about as well is um, being black enough. I think it's interesting because I think it comes up in various communities. It's something that I have struggled with growing up, I guess, being in a mostly white school. Yeah, people would just say some interesting things about me. So I'd have the black community sort of saying that I was a coconut, which is a term which basically means you're black on the outside, white on the inside. And I would have sort of what people were talking to me about being ghetto. It's this thing where it was very difficult to know where to fit. It's just quite difficult to navigate because I guess there's also this thing about being a respectable black person. Respectability politics where you're kind of the black person who's okay is not ghetto. So they're kind of like more white appearing in you know in these kind of traditional stereotypical ways we're talking about. And so I think it's hard to not fall into a place of actually well what do I need to be okay if I behave a certain way people call me ghetto if I don't behave that way then I'm not black enough kind of internalized racism I think that happens within black communities you know I remember being made fun of for doing well in my English A-levels and GCSEs because I was being polite or not getting sent out all the time and people would be like why are you trying to behave like white people that's a real madness to think that actually doing well in a school situation and not being rude was a white thing. It's like intra-racism that's fueled by the fact that there's white privilege and conforming to not be oppressed by systemic racism, that it's then snowballing into this ins and out groups with who you're associated with. And you, then you, you're feeling rejected from both ethnic groups. Yeah, I think the thing about black enough it's about being dehumanised. Why can't black people just be black? Yeah. Why can't they just be black and whatever they want to be? Can I be black and joyful? Can I be black and a gangster? Can I be black and be a scholar? Whatever it might be, but it's this idea, isn't it, that you fit into a box and you stay in that box. And it's very, very hard, I think, to break out of. And I think even being with white friends, sort of GCSE kind of age, so you're 15, 16, and sort of people being like oh, you know, I'm so glad that I met you because you're just like me, you're just like me. And like, yeah, like it's really been really helpful for me knowing a black person. And it's just like, well, I'm not just like you. <laughs> I'm just me. <laughs> but you're making, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, they're, they're going, you're just like me because you're conforming to white uh, behaviours and whatever. And so that's sort of acceptable, as it were. And you're then denying your reality. God, I can imagine that being so difficult. When I first sort of learned about white saviorism, and it was the the first thing that popped into my head was Tarzan, as of this white boy in the in the jungles, who they know is leader of gorillas or whatever, and he's like a white kid, 
Like, how has this happened? Literally, everybody's white in every every film where there's a hero. <laughs> like, yeah, they want people feeling good about going to the places and like helping and supporting. And I think it's so oh it's so messy and murky i guess my line of thought is if you are white or even just british anyone i think from a privileged place if you don't build houses here if you're not a builder here why do you think you can go and build there (laughs) i don't understand (laughs) are you skilled in that trade if it's a no then maybe that's not a job for you in someone else's country would you go to the social housing down your road and take pictures of people and knock on their doors and try and get a picture of the babies and i know i'm talking about poverty you know it's like i'm gonna come around and take a picture with your kid why you wouldn't do that at a children's home here that's <laughs> true good point so why are you doing it there and i guess when you come down to it it's like oh yeah that's because people here are white and it's also not allowed you quickly get arrested <laughs> <laughs> you're not gonna go to children's home <laughs> hi <laughs> yeah oh my god look look at, look at this kid <laughs> Like, no, it's not okay. But I think it does have people feel good about themselves. They don't work with kids. They never have. Why are you there? Yeah, exactly. And I think these conversations are actually really difficult to have with people because you're kind of just taking a shit on what they think is doing a good thing when you're actually like, eh, you're, you know, they're perpetuating very, very wrong ideas here. So how can we improve? Like, what is it that we can do as a society? Because there's one thing that we gets thrown around a lot as well, and I think it's really, really important to highlight. It's a white person's problem. But then how do we help? I definitely don't have all the answers, but I think it's got to start with within. Being a conscious person, I think being thoughtful. Like you said about the whole ego stuff, you know, not assuming that you always know what's up, not assuming that you've got it right all the time being open to criticism and allowing that to be constructive and actually allowing it to be transformative especially being in a healthcare profession that's a really normalized thing you get things wrong you learn you're reflective and you change your practice and that's how you improve as a person who wants to help other people it may be inside you might feel a bit like oh i thought i did a good job like oh shit (laughs) that's really sad and oh I really tried hard and I didn't actually do very well you have to be open to the fact that actually what you did wasn't so great or it could have been better maybe it was really amazing but it still could have been better and so I think developing that reflective ability and assumption that you're always right I think that's a really good starting place yeah I guess going back to that kind of training model of like, actually, we're all here to learn and being willing to understand you perpetuated things. So, you know, actually taking responsibility for things and with that being okay. So feeling the discomfort, you know, discomfort, it's it's a feeling like it will pass unless you keep on doing the bad thing, like then it will stay. Um, But actually, that's a signal. It's important to listen to that. Why do I feel uncomfortable right now? Is it because actually I did something bad? In fact, doing this podcast for me, I really wanted to do something on, on racism and mental health specifically because of the impacts of racism. I felt very uncomfortable. I was like, I don't want to be, I don't want to fall into sort of white saverism. I didn't want it to be like a tokenism thing. And when uh, I met you and you were just the perfect person, then I was like, 
so pleased because I knew that we could have an open, honest dialogue about these things. And I remember thinking then that why was I so worried? This is exactly what is needed. <laughs> so, so true. It's just, it's just conversations are so important, especially with people that you know well. It's just good to be honest and for it to be okay that maybe some things might be a bit skew-if and actually that's all right because we're all going to learn from it even during lockdown me and my friends especially over blm like we've been having loads of conversations via voice notes oh yeah i love it it's been like mini essays it's been really funny these were my white friends and we'll sort of be like oh i've seen seen this in the news and this is what i think and actually let's have a chat about it and we do and i know there's also a lot around black people are sick of talking about things we're tired and i also agree with that but these are friendships of course we can talk about this stuff and if I am tired, I'll tell you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> then we don't talk about it for a while. And that's okay. It's, it's not me being, I guess, rude or I'm tired of you. It's like I'm tired. Let's pick it up again in a few weeks or never. <laughs> but it's okay. You must have unbelievable amounts of patience for dealing with white people's ignorance and just lack of education and, and all whole host of things. I remember when we first started talking about doing this and you were just like, if, if they make mistakes, then so be it. And I was like, that is the person <laughs> I need in my life. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Sir. It's been a huge pleasure and I've really enjoyed this podcast. Before you go, is there anything else you'd like to add or anything you'd recommend people read or anything that you just want to, you know, add to the show really? Yeah, I just hope people do have conversations. I think that is how we're going to change the world and I think people in power having those conversations and actually making a difference. Like making real change, you know, making sort of action plans about how to make things different. I think that's super important too. And yeah, reading. Some people are into reading, but audiobooks are also great. You say about me and white supremacy. Leila Assad. You just mentioned Rennie, Edo Lodge. Um, I'm going to talk to white people about race. Natives by Carl. I mean, there's, there's, there's so many books. The White Fragility... Robin DeAngelo. There are so many books and podcasts that I think that are out there at the moment that are def- definitely worth a listen. Yeah, and also if you like poetry, then you can find my poetry. <laughs> definitely. So I write about lots of different stuff like this, and I'm on Instagram at Black Sugar Rising with one R. I think it's an, a nice mode, a nice modem of sort of talking about this stuff. Definitely. Well, thank you so much. I'll link everything down in the description box below. Huge privilege. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been so, so good. Thank you. Yeah, it's been, it's been brutal. So that does it for this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. I hope you enjoyed Tanisha. I hope you guys learned something, uh, particularly about racism. I think that's quite an important aspect. Kudos to Tanisha for being so open and honest. I think it takes a lot of bravery to come onto a podcast and talk about your own mental health journey. Definitely check out her poetry as well. It touches on some really key topics and it is really quite powerful. Also check out some of the books that will be linked in the description box below. There are also Amazon affiliate links so they help out the show. Or tweet us at brain underscore dump underscore pod. It would be fantastic if we can grow this little community a bit further. But in the meantime, take care, stay safe, and thanks so much. See you in the next one.